starting at the first verse of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. The second reading is taken from John, uh, chapter 4, which can be found on page 1067. 1067, beginning at the first verse of chapter 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Would you turn to that second reading, John 4? It's on page 1066. And just to say, at the end of uh, my sermon, um, I'm going to ask you all to stand, and I'm going to pray for us as a church that God would fill us by his Holy Spirit. Uh, 
because part of my sermon I'm thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and then the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual. Uh, you see it's communion, so when you come forward, if you'd like to be prayed for personally to be filled with the Holy Spirit, would you grab a Bible just so that we know that? And, uh, well, the hymn books, nobody has a hymn book. I think, all oh, right, bring a hymn book, it's smaller, a uh, little red hymn book. Just bring that up and we'd love to pray for you there. I wonder if you've ever been thirsty, really thirsty, having a raging thirst. Hunger and thirst express our very basic physical needs. But of course you can be spiritually hungry and spiritually thirsty too. Today is Pentecost, when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to every Christian. And our first reading from Acts 2 reminds us how he came and transformed a defeated small group of men to become those later accused of turning the world upside down. Remember, that included the mighty Roman Empire. But when you compare the early church with today's church, particularly in the West, you begin to ask questions about the disparity, the difference between one and the other. In addition, there is tremendous spiritual hunger and thirst among Christians. Billy Graham, in his book on the Holy Spirit, wrote this, Everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They're hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all that they expected, and they often have recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. And this is the bit. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want to look first at the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual. John chapter 4 describes a meeting that Jesus had with a woman at a well. Jesus teaches us that it is he alone who can satisfy that raging spiritual thirst that is in every human being. The context reminds us that Jesus was no respecter of barriers between people, and he was certainly crashing through a few of these barriers in his conversation. First of all, she was a Samaritan. There'd been a feud between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. Then she was a woman. Strict rabbis were forbidden to speak to a woman in public. And finally, she was undoubtedly a social outcast because of her immoral life, which was why she'd gone to the well in the middle of the day, at the hottest point in the day, when no one else would have been present. Jesus starts where she is, with her concern about water. And what a good lesson that is when opening up a spiritual conversation with someone. Where are they? He gets her immediate attention because he speaks about what concerns her. It's water. But he speaks somewhat mysteriously about living water. Look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman is somewhat mystified. She can only think in the here and now, in practical terms. Verse 11. Sir, you've nothing to draw with with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? You haven't got a bucket. It's a bit of humor in the Bible. How are you going to get this living water? 
And then she asks, as we see in verse 12, how can you talk about something which Jacob couldn't produce? Namely, running water. For that was the ordinary meeting of the phrase living water. In effect, she's saying, Jacob, great as he was, had to dig a well. Are you claiming to be able to get fresh running water from the well? If you are, are you claiming to be greater than Jacob? Jacob, of course, was very great. No one has the right to make that claim. Now, at this point, we need to point out that the Bible has another way of using the word water, namely, when speaking of the thirst of the soul for God and how that thirst could be quenched with living water. So in the book of Revelation is the promise, to the thirsty I will give water without price from the fountain of the water of life. Listen to King David speaking of that thirst in Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have you ever known that spiritual thirst? I have. The Old Testament tells us it's no good trying to quench soul thirst ourselves by building our own water tanks. Tanks such as success, material goods, lovely homes, great holidays, they're all good in themselves. But these things ultimately will not satisfy the thirst in our souls. Only God, by his Holy Spirit, can do that. Here is how Jeremiah put it. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've not only turned away from God, they've built their own water tanks, and they're broken. What's the point? So with this in mind, let's return to John 4. Look at verse 13. Everyone, says Jesus, who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is making the astonishing claim that he could give the woman living water which would banish her soul thirst forever and replace it with eternal life. This is nothing less than a claim to be the Messiah, the anointed one long promised in the Old Testament and eagerly awaited by the Jews. For only God could give that living water. The woman had clearly heard of the Messiah. Look ahead to verse 25. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And here's the moment of drama. Because Jesus replies, I who speak to you am he. What a moment. What a moment of revelation for her, for us. So what do we take from this meeting? The Samaritan woman was looking for significance and fulfillment through her relationships. And it would seem she hadn't found it. After all, she had had five husbands 
and the relationship she was having was with someone who wasn't her husband. She was clearly searching. She was in spiritual need, but was looking for spiritual satisfaction in the broken water tanks of sexual relationships. And Jesus invited her to receive from him living water, which would become in her a spring of water, continuously flowing and welling up to eternal life. She would receive the Holy Spirit into her life. He would be a constant resource and blessing now and always. And that invitation is open to you and me today. It's not just a historic thing, a one-off meeting, because as we can see from Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, as we'll see later, is available for all Christians. We have the same opportunity to receive his loving presence, which will satisfy our deepest longings. Simon Ponsonby in his book More writes this, the twofold promise of eternal life and satisfaction appears to be conditioned by a threefold response. Believe, come, drink. I do believe in Christ absolutely, but do I come? Sometimes. Do I drink? Sometimes. And here perhaps, says Ponsonby, is the key. I experience a partial appropriation because of a partial response. I only receive partially because I only take partially. We need only look to Christ and remove the rubble, the accumulation of sin, resentments, bitterness, faithlessness, lack of spiritual desire, and the spirit will rush forward, turning barrenness to beauty, desert into oasis, struggle into satisfaction. I want that, don't you? What's not to like, as they say? Christians have argued about whether being filled by the Holy Spirit happens in uh, an experience subsequent to conversion called the second blessing. I believe the Bible teaches we are filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion when we first become Christians, but Scripture doesn't limit his work to a single occasion. Be filled with the Spirit, writes Paul in Ephesians 5, and the Greek word really means go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Making the same point, Bishop David Pitches once said that the second blessing comes after the first and before the third. In other words, even a Christian needs to go on being filled again and again, blessing after blessing. Because as somebody else memorably said, the trouble is, I leak. For the Holy Spirit's work and presence is a tremendous blessing to the individual Christian, strengthening our walk with God and our closeness to Jesus. But secondly, his presence is also a blessing, indeed essential, for the church. The people in the church at Corinth were very committed to the Holy Spirit and his work. However, in their exercise of spiritual gifts, they were somewhat chaotic. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 12? It's page 1153. Page 1153. 
Now, Paul sets out some clear guidelines. These guidelines are key for us as we consider this All Aboard Sunday as well. Look at verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. God designed us to be different. And the reason being that because we are different, we can bring different spiritual gifts to the church family. It always makes me smile, actually. As I look to the morning congregation, I want to say, you are very different. Evening service, perhaps, is slightly less different, but different. We are. Uh, We sang in the morning service one of my favorite children's songs, The Big Family of God. Some of us are big and tall. Some of us are very small. Some of us are very loud. Some of us don't make a sound. God loves everyone he's made. We're all part of the big family of God. But the Holy Spirit is behind it all, and he is the one who gives to every Christian his gifts. As Paul says in verse 7, for the common good, for the good of everybody. The gifts of the Spirit are given to make the church function effectively. And in verse 12, Paul uses the analogy of the body, which is made up of many parts. Though its parts are many, it forms a single body. The church is like a body, and the head of the body is Christ. The body needs all the parts to function healthily, eyes, feet, hands, ears, and noses, none more or less important than the other, none unnecessary. And we all know what it's like if one part of our physical body is not functioning properly. I now understand more about hearts than I did before. A headache affects everything. A broken leg holds us back in our daily life. So it is in the church. If one part is not working properly, we are all affected. I remember somebody saying uh, in a small group many years ago, Ah, Charles, I don't think I'm coming this evening. And I knew it wasn't a sort of, I've got to see the Queen or I've, you know, something really important. It was just, I don't feel like turning up. And I said, oh, please do, because we're going to be handicapped if you're not there. Your gift that God has given you, which is for us, is going to be absent. He said, I'd never thought of it like that. We need you. So it is in the church. If one part is not working, we're all affected. God's given his Holy Spirit with different gifts, different ways of serving, and if we don't use them, we are depriving everyone else. So in Romans 12, Paul lists some of those gifts, making the same point. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. That's interesting. God's grace ensures that he gives us the gift that's suitable for us. So therefore, we are honor-bound to use it. It is a child-shaped gift. It is a Hannah-shaped gift. It is a Hannah-shaped gift. It's a Juliet-shaped gift. It's a Natalie-shaped gift. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Use the gift that God has given you. Where would we be at St. Michael's without the encouragers? Oh, I do love encouragers. Don't you? 
Where would we be without those who lead? Small group leaders, children's church leaders, members of the church council? Where would we be without those with gifts of administration? Goodness me, we need gifts of administration. You think this all happens. It doesn't. There's lots of organization. And it's a gift of the Spirit, verse 28. Or with musical gifts. Do you know how fortunate we are at St. Michael's with our musicians? In Ephesians 4, Paul says how gifts like those of prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are given by the Holy Spirit for a reason. Here's the reason. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Do you see that? The whole point of it is that all the gifts are given to us so that we can serve God better, so that we may be built up in our faith and in the knowledge of Jesus and become mature Christians. So can you see the vital link between the gifts the Holy Spirit gives and the absolute necessity of exercising those gifts and the growth of the church? And works of service are part and parcel of being a disciple. If you're not serving Christ in some way in the church and in the world outside it, you're holding back the growth of the church. And you will miss out on the excitement of seeing men, women, and children grow in their faith and their effectiveness for Jesus. I will tell you a secret. The thing that keeps me going is seeing the power of God changing lives. I've seen it for nearly 40 years. And more. God changes lives. He's in the life-changing business. Welcoming, serving coffee, leading a home group, Bible teaching for both men and women, serving as a church warden. Do you pray for our church wardens, Will and uh, Alex? I hope you do. And the church council, teaching our children and young people. So we see the Holy Spirit at work in the individual, satisfying our deepest spiritual needs. God longs to quench our thirst. We also see the Holy Spirit at work in the church, enabling us all, different as we are, to use the spiritual gifts that God has given us for the good of all. This is terrific, isn't it? Aren't you on the edge of your seat? Some of you aren't. The fact is that some are nervous about the Holy Spirit. What holds us back from receiving from God by his Holy Spirit? If we take it that God is generous and loving and wants us to have the very best. For some, it'll be for the very first time, consciously, as they become Christians. For others, being open to being filled again by the Holy Spirit. What holds us back? Last week, Tim preached in our sermon series in the book of Revelation on the reality of the spiritual battle and Satan's opposition. I pointed out the uh, picture of St. Michael and Satan depicted as a dragon, who's not only dead, but do you see he's chained as well? Totally dead and imprisoned. A.W. Tozer, in a sermon, said this, which I think is very striking. Satan has opposed the doctrine of the spirit-filled life about as bitterly as any doctrine there is. He has confused it, opposed it, surrounded it, 
with false notions and fears. Why? Because if we really understand the filling of the Holy Spirit and what God has available for us, we are going to be more effective Christians. Isn't that right? So, of course, he's interested in making it confusing and difficult and opposing it. And he goes on like this, which I love. This is one of those things I want to write down. The spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. Don't you think that's great? The spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. Listen to this quote from John Piper. Simon Ponsonby brings it up. What we should seek, and this applies to all Christians, he said, is that God pour his spirit out upon us so completely that we're filled with joy, victorious over sin, and bold to witness. And the ways he brings us to that fullness are probably as varied as people are. It may come in a tumultuous experience of ecstasy and tongues. It may come through a tumultuous experience of ecstasy and no tongues. It may come through a crisis of suffering when you abandon yourself totally to God. Or it may come gradually through a steady diet of God's word and prayer and fellowship and worship and service. However it comes, our first experience of the fullness of the Spirit is only the beginning of a lifelong battle to stay filled with the Spirit. So I ask you again, do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you want to be refilled with the Holy Spirit? What's not to like? In a moment I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray for us together. And then when it comes to communion, if you want to be prayed for personally, just bring It doesn't matter if it's a red hymn book or a Bible. Just show us you'd like to be prayed for. I suspect that the weakness of the church today and of our Christian witness is partly because we don't draw on that everlasting spring of living water. And we get desperately hungry and thirsty. How surprising is that? Please stand. I think there are three sorts of people here tonight. Those who have not yet put their personal trust in Jesus, but you want to do so today so that you're filled by the Holy Spirit with Jesus' love and his presence in your life. Some may be a bit uncertain but want to be certain where you stand with Jesus. So again, that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit, with his loving presence. Jesus doesn't want us to be uncertain about where we stand with him so that we may receive his living presence. He is the living God who wants a relationship with us. Those who have been Christians sometime may want more of God's power and love in your lives by the Holy Spirit to be filled again. I'm going to pray two prayers. 
the first for those who've not, never put their trust in Jesus or are uncertain, and the second one for those of us who want to be refilled. Here's the first prayer. Echo it in your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would refill us by your Holy Spirit, that we know, may know more of your love, more of your power, more of your presence to equip us to serve you and to grow in faith, to become mature. Renew us, restore us, set us on fire again with love for you, who first loved us. Come, Holy Spirit.